Chapter Eight of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Eight. Touch is the sight of the body. Sight is the touch of the soul. Charles Blanc. Read us at length. Read this transcendent thing, neither angel nor human, alert with a lion's strength, plumed with an eagle's wing, but still with the face of a woman. July kindled slowly but fiercely, like the heart of a furnace. The delicate edges of each nervous leaf on the famous Harmouth elms curled and blackened. The much-graveled sidewalks burned the dignified feet of the professors on their patient way to lecture. The much-expanded cotton umbrella gloomed gracefully above their heads. The college boys fitted for biennial under the tutelage of the ice-cream vendor, and became the abject praise of the soda-fountain and the lemonade boy. The yachting parties drew in their idle sails. Aunt Chloe's anxious watering-pot made no tours among the stifling flowers, till the scorching sun had stooped. The blinds of the garden-studio were closely drawn. At the front, hale soldiers dropped from the ranks with sunstroke, and the wounded died of thirst upon the field. It was the summer of battles. Fair Oaks, the Seven Days, Cedar Mountain, Bull Run, Harper's Ferry, Antietam. Avis that summer seemed to herself to be turning her life through her fingers, as we turn the pages of a book whose purpose we foreknew, but whose construction is blind. Its action moved slowly and almost painfully, like the motion of superfluous details muffling the stir of events. She read on and on and on, with fixed eyes, but with a sense of expectance difficult to explain or justify. By and by the text would be clear, by and by she should live in terse sentences. She had set herself with more patience than power resolutely to work, but she found the lips of her visions muttering in a foreign tongue. She sat entire days before an untouched canvas. She stared entire nights upon untapestried darkness. Her father found her one day, burning the sketches in her studio in a fever of self-despair. He said nothing except that he thought the sketches were promised to him, gave her a keen look, patted her cheek gently, and went away. He could not help her. He supposed that was the way the fine frenzy worked upon the feminine nature. Perhaps her mother would have known what to say to the child. If she must live this life, she needed her mother. The professor had long since tabulated his daughter as a glittering syllogism, whose premises were incorrect, though its conclusion was perversely attractive, and so, like a philosopher, peacefully given her up. It must be admitted that Avis's pictures were better than her biscuit. And man did not live on bread alone. And sometimes, when he came out from the studio, a dimness like faint mist stirred far within his cavernous eyes. She would have been proud of this dark-eyed, deft-handed, undomestic girl. She had never wanted a boy. Beyond two or three really fine things done in Paris, the landscape which had attracted so much notice in London, a sketch or so in the spring exhibition, and Philip Ostrander's portrait, Avis had as yet done little towards giving form to her ideals, and more than one year of Couture's golden probation was gone. Her return to America had been in itself one of those stimulating experiences whose immediate effect is a sedative one. The elemental loves of kin and country had been stirred in her to the finest fibre of their wide-reaching roots. She had come home to find that the afternoon sun in her father's study, on the picture of Sir William, thrilled her as no glory or story of Vatican, Pitti, or Louvre had ever done. 
It meant more to her at first, just to go out into the garden and bury her face in the young grass, and listen to the squirrels scolding in the pear-trees, and the trustful call of the cows waiting for Jacobs down the field. Then it seemed as if the fair young picture before her could ever mean. Especially she was moved by the spring's scents, the breath of the earth, where the overturned loam lay moistly melting shades of brown together, amber, umber, sienna, madder, bitumen, and van dyke with that tenderness which is so inexpressibly heightened by the gravity of the colour, the aromatic odour of the early bonfires, with whose smoke the languid air was blurred and blue, then by the exhalation of small buds, the elm and the grape that borrowed the mantle of the leaf, as wild things do that of the forest, to escape detections. Every sense in her quivered to homely and unobtrusive influences. It was a long time before she could look at a certain faded cricket in the parlour that her mother worked, without the strange hot tears. She would not have exchanged the choirs of St. Peter's for the sound of the old chapel-bell calling the students to evening prayers. And then—ah, well—and then there had been that slip upon the lighthouse reef, that had cost its own proportion of dumb days. And after that she had painted the portrait. And then it would have been impossible to forecast the precise personal effect of this war. Life, she thought, had pressed too near her, since she came home, for her to tell the world what it meant, clung too close, and with too sweet insistence, like the friend who stops the mouth with kisses. All those studies which had stood with their faces to the wall while Ostrander had been in the studio, she would have liked to put out of the wide world, if her father had not cared. She wanted a clean, cold, barren start, like a racer in a moor. There were some pleasant little things among them, too—a Florentine sunset, five poplars on the crest of a hill against a sky of dull metallic red, a Neapolitan girl tossing her bambino into the air, a study of breakers under an advancing fog, the mist stalking in about a headland, licking up the deep undertones of a great green wave, figures—a man and a woman peering over the edge of a precipice under an intense tropical moon, a woman's head, the eyes quite turned away a study from some Parisian model, unfinished. But Avis put them all back, with their faces to the wall, sat an hour longer before her blank canvas, then laid down the charcoals and went wearily out into the hot air. The sultry evening had settled upon the sultrier day. The college boys over on the green were singing army songs. "'The studio is too hot,' said Aunt Chloe, with conscientious sympathy. "'I wonder if it wouldn't help you to go down into the cellar, and stir the ice-cream.' I shall get to work to-morrow," said Avis, who never liked her studio to be under family discussion. But to-morrow Coy came over to take her to the chapel, where the women of Harmouth sat with hushed voices, rolling bandages and picking lint. The butchery of Bull Run had fallen upon the mangled land. This meant that it was August in the garden studio. Avis had meant to have a picture, had hoped to have a good picture, well under way by the time that the copper-coloured sunlight struggled through the August murk upon the easel. She went up to her bedroom that night with dogged eyes. She had fallen into one of those syncopes of the imagination in which men have perilled their souls to stimulate a paralysed inspiration. By any cost, by virtue or by vice, by friend or by fiend, by prayer or by wine, the dumb artist courts the miracle of speech. Angel or devil, who is it that troubleth the torpid waters? Equally the soul makes haste, lest another should step down before her. Avis shut and locked the door of her bare, old-fashioned room, looking about it with a kind of triumphant rebellion. She was a woman. 
Those four walls shut out the world from the refined license of her mood. She wanted nothing of it, the great unholy world, in which seers struggled and sinned for their visions. Let them go fighting and erring on. God spoke in another way to women, in no earthquake, in no fire of the soul, but in still small voices. What would her escaping nature with her? Perhaps by and by, when all the house was still, she would go bounding down through the long grass, and dash herself full length upon the shore, and let one wave, just one, break its white heart upon her. Or she would push her little boat off from the beach, and row out alone a mile or two down by the harbour, till she was exhausted, and so calmed, by the wooing of the faint moonlit shores. The only thing she could think of that she wanted, out of all the intoxications that the round world held that summer night, would be a room full of hyacinths, rose hyacinths, and some one to play Schumann in the sultry garden. Then, by morning, she might paint her picture. Was that what the work of women lacked? High stimulant, rough virtues, strong vices, all the great peril and power of exuberant exposed life. Dreamily across the current of her thought floated the pathetic sound of the boys' voices in the street, still and forever busy with those army songs. In the beauty of the lilies Christ was born across the sea. She turned from the window with an abrupt, dejected motion. Who could make a picture till the war was over? Since he died to make men holy, sang on the boys, let us die to make men free. She stood for some moments quite still, in the middle of the room, her arms thrown down, and her fingers clasped together at the tips. Suddenly starting with a firm step and half-amused, half-curious lighting of the face, she unlocked a little French dressing-case that stood upon the bureau, and took from it a slender bottle, bearing the trademark of a house in the south of France, and the label, Eau de Fleur d'Angers. She poured the liquid out, holding it to the light. Each drop was an amber bead, sluggish and sweet. Leave men their carousal, their fellowship, the heart's blood of the burning grape. In the veins of the buds that girls wear at their bridles runs a fire of flavour deep enough for us. The wine of a flower has carried many a pretty Parisian to an intrigue or a convent. Could it carry a Yankee girl to glory? So, half laughing, half credulous, wholly excited, Avis swallowed a cautious dose of the innocent-looking liqueur, darkened her room, threw wide her blinds, and went to bed. In the course of perhaps ten minutes she experienced a slight swimming of the head. She bolstered herself high upon the square pillows, and threw her arms down by her side. They fell heavily, and she found it a task not quite worth the undertaking to stir them again from their places. A dull but not painful pressure set slowly in the brain, and a slight but not disagreeable ringing in the ears. The most distinct thought that she had was now a sense of relief that she could not hear the army songs. Suddenly the room began to reel. Then, as if a titan had taken her by the feet and swung her through infinite space, she felt herself spin round and round. As suddenly all motion and all sound ceased. She sat up against the pillows. The world was still, cool, calm. If she had been foolish to try the experiment upon so warm a day, she thought she was lightly punished. Her head was quite clear and strong. She got up and bathed her face and bare arms and neck. All her motions were free and full. Only a faint sickness remained. Nothing had happened. She drained a tumbler of ice-water, and went back to bed. The moon had now set. Nothing had happened except that the darkness had become alive. That which she saw appeared at the remote wall of the room, a panorama extending from floor to ceiling, stirring slowly, like a gobelin tapestry which unseen hands rolled and unrolled. 
She roused herself, sitting with her hands clasped about her knees, giving, as was her habit, a more iron attention to these fictions of her own nature than to anything which those of others had made fact in the world. Neither Raphael nor Titian could have taught her what she learned in one such self-articulate hour as this. The first thing which she saw was a huge earthen vase, standing by itself against the wall, raised a few inches from the floor, thus, and thus only, indicating to her eyes that it was not what we are used to call a reality. It was of an antique Egyptian mould, with which she must have been unconsciously familiar, but the pattern of its decoration was one perfectly unknown to her. Through a maze of lotus leaves Isis went seeking Osiris, the figures moving faintly before her eyes till they had adjusted themselves with what seemed a voluntary motion to their attitudes upon the clay. The figures were black, expressed by grey lights. The leaves were of an opaque green, without veining or shadow. A raised design of silver and steel surrounded the neck, lips, and pedestal of the jar. If it had been light enough she could have taken her pencil and accurately copied this design, which was very intricate, and which pleased her. At the mouth of the jar a bronze crocodile lurked, with four feet and jaws only raised above the edge, lolling like a tongue. This appearance, which lasted but a few moments, was the signal for a kaleidoscope of beautiful and soulless form to stir before her, slowly and subtly, like the outer circle of a whirlpool into which she was to be drawn. Pottery, porcelain, furniture, drapery, sculpture, then flowers, fruits, a medley of still life swept through strange, half-revealed, but wholly resplendent interiors, which glided on indifferently, like languages that said, What hast thou to do with us? Now and then, out of the splendid maze, a distinct effect seemed to pause, and poise itself, and woo her through the dark. An open hand, raised, and turned at the wrist like a flower on its stem, held water-lilies drooping and dripping. A sunbeam, above an empty chair in a student's alcove, focused upon a child's shoe and a woman's ribbon. A skull ground a rose between its teeth. Bees, upon a patch of burning July sky, wooed a clover. In a pool in a cliff, a starfish defined the colours of a tangle of weeds and shells. In a thicket of wild briar a single rose-leaf had fallen upon a grey stone across which, and over the miniature clearing in the mimic forest, the tattered and fringed light lay. These passed. Avis nodded at them like the children in the visions in Hans Andersen's tales. It was all a kind of bric-a-brac. She had not the ceramic nature. Let them go. They were succeeded by an uplifting and sweeping on of perspective, by means of which great distances seemed to become measurable in the little room. Through them the generous moods of nature stirred, and earth turned herself about like a beautiful creature half awake. At first it was the cactus on the Campagna which shot up against the dark, scarlet, blazing, having a pulsation like a heart. It towered heaven high, as if to the eyes of one who sat below its level. And low through, and far beyond it, the sun had set, shrinking under a purple cloud. Then out of a cool green shadow faint outlines grew, sharpened, swept, and a world of ferns arose. She could see spiral buds uncoil delicately, like the opening life of a silent girl, and the fine fronds sway and aspire. These, too, shot high, as if she had been prone upon the ground among them, and on them the light lay low. From the gold to the cold every chromatic shade due to them was there. It was a melody in green. From this there slowly gathered itself and leaned towards her one titanic wave. It was a mid-ocean wave. It reared its full length from foot to head. 
the colours which are seen only at the ocean's core settled upon it. Not a shoal tint was in it. It was both the science and the art of a wave. It held both the passion and the intellect of the sea. Above its crest there was flung one human hand, and a strip of pearl-white sky. A medley of outlines followed, caravans crawling through a desert, sunsets behind palmettos, twilights in forests, wherein no man had been since the making of the world, a silver fog curling from a harbour pierced by the masts of anchored ships, wastes of snow, blue-cold, and wan, unbroken by human foot, defined by the loneliest of all horizons, the horizon of pines, then one mountain peak swathed below in gloom, swiftly broken at the summit into glory, on which God made himself an awful rose of dawn. But Avis bowed her head before these things, and said, Only the high priest enters in. When she raised her eyes, they fell upon forms and faces grown gaunt with toil, an old man sowing sparse seed in a chill place, the lantern flash on a miner's stooping face, the brow and smile of a starving child, sailors abandoned in a frozen sea, a group of factory women huddling in the wind, the poisoned face of a lead-worker suddenly uplifted like a curse, two huge hands knotted with labour, and haggard with famine, thrust groping out upon the dark. But her heart cried out, I am yet too happy, too young, too sheltered to understand. How dare I be the apostle of want and woe! Even with the word the vision changed, and slowly as she leaned to look, swiftly as her heart beat in gazing, there grew the outline of a face. It was a face dark, dim, brightening, blinding, beneath a crown of thorns, but she dashed her hand across her eyes and said, I am unworthy. The night might have been now well worn on, and she was conscious only of that exhaustion of the nature which comes from a highly excited but impotent imagination. The repose of creation had failed to relieve the fever of vision. She was thinking so, dejectedly enough, listlessly looking in one corner of the room, where two or three slender, bright harebells seemed to be springing from a cleft in a rock, when as she looked, a girl in the garb of a peasant stood stooping to pluck them. Instantly the room seemed to become full of women. Cleopatra was there, and Godiva, Aphrodite and St. Elizabeth, Ariadne and Esther, Helen and Jeanne d'Arc, and the Magdalene, Sappho and Cornelia, a motley company. These moved on solemnly, and gave way to a silent army of the unknown. They swept before her in file, in procession, in groups. They blushed at altars, they knelt in convents, they leered in the streets, they sang to their babes, they stooped and stitched in black attics, they trembled beneath summer moons, they starved in cellars, they fell by the blow of a man's hand, they sold their souls for bread, they dashed their lives out in swift streams, they wrung their hands in prayer. Each in turn these figures passed on, and vanished in an expanse of imperfectly defined colour like a cloud, which for some moment she found without form and void to her. Slowly but surely at last, and with piercing vividness, this unfolded, and she saw in curt outlines, like a story told in a few immortal words, this only. She saw a low, unclouded eastern sky, fire to the horizon's rim, sand and sun, the infinite desert, a caravan departing, faint as a forgotten hope, midway what might be a camel perished of thirst, in the foreground the sphinx, the great sphinx, restored. The mutilated face patiently took on the forms and the hues of life, the wide eyes met her own, the dumb lips parted, the solemn brow unbent, the riddle of ages whispered to her, 
the mystery of womanhood stood before her and said, Speak for me. Avis lay back upon her pillow with a sudden, long, sobbing sigh. She was very tired, but she had seen her picture. Tomorrow she could work. Up to this point there had been nothing unprecedented in the character of these fantasies, excepting in their number and variety. Her creative moods were always those of tense vision, amounting almost to optical illusion, failing of it only where the element of deception begins. But now when, exhausted and satisfied, she turned upon her pillow, nestling her cheek into her hand like a child, for sleep none came. Still before her closed eyes the panorama swept imperiously, but it had become a panorama of agonies. For a long time she perceived only the suffering of animals, an appalling vision of the especial anguish incident to dumb things. She saw the quiver of the deer under the teeth of the hound, the heart-throb of the pursued hare, the pathetic brow of a dying lioness, the reproach in the eye of a shot bird, a dog under vivisection licking the hand that tore him. Sharply, without transition or preparation of the fancy, this changed to—oh, heavens! What? Avis started with a cry that rang through and through the sleeping house, beating her hands against her eyes, as if she would beat out the very retina on which the shadow of such sight could fall. For now she was pursued by a vision of battles. Martial music filled the room. Bright blood-streaked standards waved and sank and rose again. Human faces, like a wind-struck tide, surged to and fro. Men reeled, threw up their arms, and fell. The floor crawled with the dead and dying. Wounded faces huddled in corners, came and vanished on the ceiling, entered and re-entered through the door, gasped their life away upon the bed. The glazing eye, the whitening jaw, the clinching fingers, the ineffectual hoarse effort to breathe a broken name, all were there, nothing was hidden, hinted, or veiled, nothing was spared her. Oh, terror! Oh, pity! Have mercy! Have mercy! Have mercy! Aunt Chloe came panting in, in an amazing wrapper that outdid the pansy gown, and shut the blinds before she struck the light. No good housekeeper would let in the mosquitoes, whatever the emergency. "'Nightmare, Avis! Or colic! I thought the blackberries were sour. Never mind, we will have a light directly. Why, what is this broken glass? Pieces of a bottle on the window-sill? Are you hurt? Cut? I was sure I heard your voice. But fortunately it has not waked your father. Now, my dear—' "'Aunt Chloe,' said Avis, passing her hand blindly across her eyes, "'where is the military music?' "'Music? There's no music. But those boys, they've kept it up till now, the worse for them. There'll be some business for the faculty to-morrow. I always thought the objection to a university town was the students. So that was what waked you, was it? I don't see why your father doesn't put a stop to these midnight carousals. Army songs, indeed! I suppose the cats in the back yard think they're patriotic, and I had one in Vermont that used to start America, but he never got beyond the second bar. There, my dear. All right now. Why, Avis? For Avis, like any broken-hearted woman who was not going to paint a great picture to-morrow, had fallen back upon the pillows, and crying, Auntie, Auntie, oh, Auntie, let me cry a minute, lay shivering and sobbing in the chill dawn. Aunt Chloe and the professor sat in the study in the August sunset. Aunt Chloe had meant to take the first opportunity to recommend to the faculty a stricter regime of night police for those boys, but she had forgotten all about the boys. Her knitting-work—blue stockings for a theological student destined for the Bulgarian field—lay idly on her broad, benevolent lap. Now and then the rare, honest tears of her Puritan race fell. It was too dark for Hegel to see them. 
Under the Bulgarian stocking lay the evening paper, folded with a particular crease indicative in Aunt Chloe's family that a newspaper was sacred from the waste-basket, and elected to go upon file in the left corner of the third shelf from the top in the little what-not in the study alcove. "'What?' asked the professor, bringing his more than commonly nervous pace to a halt. "'What, by the way, did Avis say to this?' "'Nothing.' "'Nothing at all. I should have thought—they were thrown so much together—that the young man's fate would have been something of a shock to her. Where is she?' "'She's been in the studio all day, except a while when she would go rowing. I found her with a terrible headache this morning, what with the blackberries and the boys. I don't believe Avis has had a headache before since she had the measles. But directly after breakfast she dragged herself out into that hot summer-house, and there she's been. I carried her the paper. I thought she'd better read it herself. She thanked me and went on drawing. Oh, yes, she asked if I knew where he would naturally be carried. To his home in New Hampshire, I should suppose, said the professor sadly. I believe there is an old father, or mother. I should have thought Avis would have been more touched by this. No doubt she feels it, said Aunt Chloe with a certain reserve. But you know when she is in that studio nothing is to be got out of her." "'True,' said the professor. "'Any close occupation indeed is literally a preoccupation. The absorbed mind is inhospitable to intrusions. Sir William says—' "'Are the faculty going to do anything?' interrupted Aunt Chloe, who seldom found Sir William as much to the point as might have been expected of a really intelligent-looking man who resembled her brother. "'What can be done?' But you may be right. There ought at least to be some formal action, some expression of sympathy. Now you remind me of it, I will just step over to the President's and see if the matter has been broached. Poor fellow! Poor fellow! Tell Avis I'll be back in season to say good-night," added the Professor gently, coming back after he had closed the door. Aunt Chloe sat for a few minutes in the dark, still idly, thinking how long it was since she had seen Hegel so much moved. Then she rolled up the Bulgarian stocking, and went to put away the paper in its place, stopping only by the window to be sure that the marked passage lay folded on the top. The faint and now rapidly dying light enabled her to read, with her common spectacles, very clearly, Ostrander, Philip, Surgeon, in the Lungs. It was perhaps a week after the Battle of Bull Run, and Avis had found herself quite undisturbed at her work, left indeed in a rather exceptional solitude at which she wondered. She liked to see Coy now and then, missed her, as we miss the sunlight whose presence we are yet too absorbed or too miserable to note. Harmouth without Coy would have been like Harmouth without the elms or the chapel-bell. She clung to Coy with the almost pathetic loyalty of a woman whose twenty-six years had given her no comradeship of a fibre against which her own could lean. In all her young and later friendships, Avis had been used to bring, not to receive, the elements of support. Deeper than all chance in this, some unconquerable instinct lay. In the relations of girlhood she had been marked for a certain sweet but unapproachable reserve. She kissed the girls politely, since it was expected of her, but in their indiscriminate caressing she found no part, no lot. Her nearest intimate could not recall an hour of weakness, of pain, or of excitement which had surprised Avis into it. As for Coy, she would as soon have thought of petting the faculty as of offering any of these little feminine eccentricities as an expression of her feeling for Avis. Now Coy had never voluntarily stayed away from her for a fortnight before in all her life. When, therefore, she came into the studio one morning after this temporary defalcation, Avis turned the sphinx to the wall, and received her with unusual warmth. "'Avis,' began Coy at once, "'you are pale, pale as the higher mathematics.' "'And you,' 
said Avis, closely scrutinizing her, standing at arm's length with both hands on her shoulders. You are as radiant as a Neapolitan rose. So she said in a novel, I think, said Coy. Be original, Avis, if you must be complimentary. You don't ask me either why I radiate. If you don't keep a cricket in your studio for me, I shall have to sit in your lap. And I've gained five pounds this summer. Well, the classical dictionary will do. It is quite as hospitable. Avis. Very well, Coy. If you are like other women, which you know you never, never will be, as I've said in your defence a hundred times, but just to suppose it, as you might suppose you could make Parker House rolls, or a tatting collar, or any other chef d'oeuvre with your nature is incapable, what I want to know is, if you liked a man—let me sharpen that crayon for you, I hate to sit doing nothing—if you liked a real, live, dreadful man, do you suppose you would be all summer finding it out? Oh, Coy! Ask me some conundrum with which my education has made me familiar. But what is it, Coy? Who is he? What have you come to tell me?" Avis laid down the crayon, pushed the sphinx a little away from her, and gently clasping her hands around Coy's neck, looked with a solemn tenderness at her. "'I said if there were,' nodded Coy perversely. "'You generalize from insufficient data, Avis, a mistake said to be common to women and reformers. But speaking of men, you know all about Mr. Ostrander. If you don't, I have a lovely bit of gossip for you, a kind of sev specimen, very rare. I like to gossip in Harmouth. It is considered so unintellectual." "'I knew that there was some hope of Mr. Ostrander's recovery.' Avis removed her arms from Coy's neck and took up her charcoal. "'Father said so this week. I have heard nothing else.' "'You didn't know he was in Harmouth?' "'In Harmouth? He was brought here last night.' Coy, on the dictionary, waited with a pretty, expectant look, perhaps to be questioned further, but Avis asked no questions. She replied that she had supposed him to be in New Hampshire, and finished sharpening the charcoal slowly. "'Guess now, Avis, where he is staying. Just guess.' "'I never guessed anything in my life.' "'Your superior women never can. Don't mind it, dear. It's a deficiency common to your class. Give it up. At Mr. Stratford Allen's.' "'Mr. Allen is very kind,' said Avis, after a momentary silence. "'And so,' said Coy, "'is Barbara very kind.' "'Barbara is a good-hearted girl,' urged Avis honestly. "'I don't like to hear women speak of one another in that tone, Coy.' "'Mr. Allen went on as far as Washington to bring him home,' proceeded Coy, ignoring the rebuke. Mr. Ostrander had no brother or father to depend upon, and Stratford Allen is always doing such things. He would let him go to those hot college-rooms. And I believe, in point of fact, it was thought the mother was too old to be anything but a burden in a sick-room. So New Hampshire was just put quietly out of the question. And here comes in the advantage of being your brother's housekeeper. All that Christian self-sacrifice and grateful patriotism can do, Barbara will see to it, is done. You may depend. There hasn't been such a dainty bit of household art decoration as in Harmouth circles this many a day. Meanwhile, poor Mr. Ostrander is still very ill, and greatly exhausted with the journey." Avis put away her charcoal, and rising hunted in her portfolio for a model of her sphinx, then for a blender, then for the chamois skin and chalk. After a little delay she sat down again, and began touching in the values of the sketch with a firm and conscientious hand. Now, she said gravely, since we cannot help Mr. Ostrander, you or I, what is it about that other man, Coy? Am I not fit, not enough like other women to hear?" The point of the blender trembled a little against the sphinx's chin. 
And you haven't been to see me for a fortnight, Coy." "'Avis,' said Coy, with judicial solemnity, "'I have done the best I could by you. We weren't engaged till last night, and I haven't even told my mother yet. I'm going to make John do that. It is with falling in love as it is with religion. Your parents are the last people to know when you've been converted. At any rate, that's the way at our house. It's a family awkwardness we have. I'd rather be disinherited than tell my mother I loved a man. She married father because she respected him. I've heard her say so. So I poked John in at the front door this morning, to have it well over with, and I ran out across lots and over here to you. It was mean, but unavoidable. John will have no trouble. He's precocious, patriotic, and pious. Three harmonious peas. He got one very becoming scar in the army. He's several years too young to have been called to the central church. And there's been a revival already since he was settled. Mother will cry a little, and be as happy as a kind-hearted old lady with a funeral to go to." "'And you,' said Avis, laying down her work and once more bringing the tips of her fingers together about Coy's neck, "'you are happy, Coy. There. Hush, I see. It wasn't fair to make you look like that." Avis's sense of awe increased. It seemed to her a kind of rudeness for her to sit and watch this young, transfigured face. She had almost a consciousness of indelicacy, as if she had usurped one of John Rose's new and sacred rites, in having surprised Coy into the expression with which, half kneeling with both arms about Avis's waist and her face uplifted, she regarded her. The two women sat for a little space in silence, Avis still with that delicate action of the hands which hovered about, but did not rest upon Coy, as if she had become a holy object that she might not touch. There was something very noticeable in this reticent and reverent motion. She was thinking how far apart, all at once, and by one little word, she and this other woman, scarcely younger than herself, scarcely more full of unexpressed life, seemed to have been thrust. "'How natural!' she said, rather wistfully. "'How natural it must seem to be so happy!' "'It is as natural as life,' said Coy, suddenly starting to her feet. "'So natural that I think John will expect me by this time. I'll tell you more about it all some other day. But there's really nothing to tell, Avis. He propounded the conundrum, and I gave it up. We just loved each other, and so we're going to be married. That's all," added Coy simply. "'It sounds a simple matter, as you put it,' said Avis, smiling in rather a lonely way. "'And I don't mean to make fun of John's revivals,' said Coy, turning in the doorway. "'If there were more like John in the world, there'd be less like—' mother, perhaps. <laughs> when he was in college, don't you know how he used to say he should have to be a minister to keep himself straight? It sounded mean, but it was only brave. And now there isn't a thread, not a shred, of cant in him. To the bottom of his soul he means what he says, and says what he means when he tries to save a soul. John believes people have got to be saved. So I have given him a chance to try his hand on me. But I shall never be half good enough for him. Never." When Coy had crossed the garden, she came back, and putting her face in at the half-open door, said, "'Avis, there's only one little matter that troubles me.' Avis, uncovering the sphinx, looked interrogatively around. "'It is Barbara Allen's curls.'" End of chapter 8